It's the Skinny Podcast, only on Local12.com. Now, here's Richard Skinner. Welcome to the Skinny Podcast. It's the weekly potpourri edition. I'm Richard Skinner, Local12.com, digital sports columnist and editor with Rick Boring. Each and every week, we look at sports topics of local interest, some national topics. We usually have a gambling segment, but uh, we're going to kind of bypass this week. I'll give out a couple of U.S. Open picks on next week's uh, podcast. And uh, for some of the Ask Skinny Anythings, we're doing this a day early, so we didn't really lobby for that. We've got a couple of questions that are actually, we appreciate it kind of get, getting woven into some of the topics that we're going to talk about on the podcast today. So thanks much for that. But we still got a lot to get to. So, Rick, let's get to it. Yeah, let's jump right in. The Reds lost Tuesday night to the Brewers in the first of a three-game series, but they came into that series on a hot streak after sweeping the Cardinals four games to none as part of a stretch where they won six of seven. As of Wednesday morning when we're recording this, they sit in fourth place in the NL Central at 28-30 and and five games back of the Brewers in first place. Skinny, do you think the Reds' sweep of the Cardinals was a sign that the team is ready to go on a run and compete within the division? Or do you think the series in St. Louis was a bit of full school? I think more the former than the latter, to be honest with you. And the unfortunate part is, I think what I'm about to touch on kind of came to fruition in, in on Tuesday night. I mean, if you look back at all four of those games in St. Louis, you got a pretty darn good start out of everybody. Um, you know, Luis Castillo had a, had a rare good start. Obviously, it was probably his, not even probably his best start of the year. Vladimir Gutierrez gave you a good start. Wade Miley gave you a really good start. Um, Tyler Malley gave you a great start. And then it looked like, all right, four in a row, you get back to your ace, Sonny Gray. And for three innings last night, Tuesday night, he was dominant. And then he gets hurt. And that's the unfortunate part of it because, you know, I wonder they gave him a one run lead the way he was dealing through three innings. Could he have taken that into the seventh or eighth and, you know, maybe then play some add on and, and win that game. And yeah, there was a little luck involved, obviously in, in St. Louis. I mean, the, the Cardinals each, each game had the tying run on, on base at some point late in the game. And the Reds were able to either stave it off or in the case of that crazy game on Sunday, when they blew the seven, nothing lead, have Jesse Winker hit the, uh, hit the solo home run to win it. So I, I don't think it's fool's gold. I think it just shows you, um, when you get quality starting pitching, you can start to string a lot together. Sadly, you got a great start last night, but he only went three innings. The point about the starting pitching is a good one. They haven't gotten that consistently through their five guys yet. I mean, it's been really rocky, obviously, with the top couple of guys. They've had some intermittent pitching from guys like Mally and Miley, obviously, has actually had a pretty nice year. But it just hasn't all come together at the same time. So you're right, having a stretch like that where they could put it together in a row was great to see. The interesting thing that sort of came about was the Reds went from seemingly the narrative was they're done. They're out of it. Stick a fork in them to all of a sudden, Hey, look at these guys fighting their tails off and playing at this super high level. Aside from the bullpen, what is ownership doing? Go get a bullpen arm. I guess I'm curious your thoughts on that because as much as everyone was was pining for, well, it's now it's the the ownership's move after that four game run, and I get that to a certain point. I also look at it like, what are we talking? I mean, this team isn't one bullpen arm away. It's not just one one guy where they can go make that that move, and all of a sudden you're going, yeah, see, now they're better than the Cubs or even the Brewers. I, yeah. I, I I, I, to me, that's just not really where they're at. Now, I could see you saying that just from a standpoint of respecting your players and your fans, maybe you go spend a little bit of money since you didn't do anything in the offseason to where you have a respectable bullpen to get you through the year. But I don't know that this is a team I'm really making big moves for, tying up a lot of money for, yeah, and, for and, this and year. I, and that's just it. I don't, I, I, you know, I've heard that narrative. Um, and I, I just, Listen, I, I think we if you're in this thing come late July before the deadline, that's when start, you know, some of those bullpen arms start to become available throughout the league. Um, that's when you go trade for one. I don't think it's going to cost you money. The question is, what level prospect does it cost you? I don't think it probably costs you a high level prospect. Then you can argue, well, let's bolster the rotation and go get another starting pitcher. All right. That's all well and good. I don't think it's a matter of money. That's a matter of what are you willing to give up prospect wise? Because usually those teams that are willing to trade a, a, you know, I don't want to call it top of the line pitcher, but certainly better than maybe what you have. Um, it's going to cost you a prospect or two. High, high level, high, how high level are we talking? Are we really willing to do that? I, I'm not. Yeah, it makes I, no I, sense. Yeah. I do think you can go parlay something into a bullpen. I mean, they did it last year. They put, they, you know, they didn't use them as much as they should have, but remember they, they, they went and got Archie Bradley, um, you know, for down the stretch and that those guys become available at the trade deadline. So I, 
I think everybody's putting the cart before the horse. I think this team is 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 right there to be in the hunt in late July. I think they do make an, a move for a bullpen arm or two. I don't think there, there's any expectation why they should go do anything else. I, I mean, I, again, it's not a matter of going to everybody's talking about the spending money part of this. It's not the spending money part. It's the what you're going to have to give up part. Yeah, and, 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 and that's what I would say. Up tie tie up money or capital, however you view that, could right, be you know right. prospects. Yeah, no, and I, I think they'll do that, Rick. And um, I don't think this is a be-all, end-all. But when Michael Lorenzen returns, I think he gives you at least a a, a, a quality bullpen arm. I, I know they were hoping to project him as a starter. I, I'm wondering if that's going to go by the wayside now. Um, that's a nice. That would be a nice addition. And and go get another one. All right, suddenly you give me the bullpen of Amir Garrett turning the page, and we got to tell. Hopefully, he turns a quarter. But T.J. Anton, Lucas Sims, Lorenzen, Sean Doolittle's been good enough in in spots. I mean, last night he came in in a tough spot, you know, in the fourth inning of being unprepared to come in at that point because of the injury, and that's always a tough spot to come into. Um, but he's been serviceable, yeah. But I, I think they do get a bullpen arm, and then I, I've heard the concept of a, if they're playing well at that point, you got to go do it. You can't. Well, if they're playing well, it means probably the pitchers are pitching pretty well. And it probably means the position players are pit, are hitting pretty well. At, at that point, what, what are we talking about? We're just talking about a bullpen arm or two. And I think you're putting the cart before the horse if you're worried about them not doing it. If I think if they're in it and they're contending and they're, you know, four or five games out, three games out, whatever number you want to set, I think they go make a move for a bullpen arm. You're just I just not, I'm just not tying up a lot of capital in that. There's no reason to. Yeah, I agree with that. And I, I think you know, for, for the most part, that's what I'm hearing is a lot of people are saying they've got to go out and make a move for a bullpen arm because the bullpen is so bad. And and I don't disagree with that. Look, I mean, it is embarrassing what this bullpen is at. And people are calling for David Bell's job when he's shuffling between a couple double A and triple A pitchers in his yeah, bullpen. The, and that's the, the thing the, I don't understand. What like how what is he supposed to do to yeah, manage the, that bullpen? Yeah, the only argument I would have to that, and I get what you're saying, I think you're right, but there's also a counter to that of, do we really need to peel Wade Miley after 92 pitches? Do we really need – this whole babying of pitchers across baseball still bothers I don't need the 140-pitch guy. But 92, and he's throwing easy, and he's not laboring. I know it was 92 in five innings. That's fairly high. That's 18 an inning. Give me one more to get to 110. That's just one less inning I got to worry about the bullpen. And listen, I know he, he's got a 7-0 lead. He's trying to get a guy some innings, and you're thinking, guy can't be that bad. Well, he was. Um, yeah, come on. come on. You cannot blame a bullpen giving up a 7-0 no, lead I'm, I'm, on no, the no, manager mishandling no. the starter. It's like I'm with that's, you, but, when you, that's when you have the, the luxury of being able to pull your starter as a 7-0 yeah, lead because you're like, you've got it. You're good. I, I'm just to that ilk of 92 pitches just seems a little bit light to me. Uh, I would say the same thing if it was a four nothing game, if it was a three nothing right. game, yeah. but at seven nothing, you're in mop up duty. This is literally the time that you say, okay, Amir Garrett, you've sucked for most of the season. Yeah, here's a, good, here's yeah. a position I'm comfortable putting you in, or, you know, whoever you want to throw out there, it doesn't really matter at this point with this bullpen. Feliz or Brees or Blaise, right. Yeah. yeah. Or, or Lucas Sims at times. And, and Lucas Sims. Yeah. yeah. Those two have been good, but other than that, yeah, it's like, this is a time to get guys work. So I, I there's just no way for me to look at that situation, a 7-0 lead, and blame the manager for mishandling the starter. That is exactly when you save your starter a little bit. You, you hope he bounces back a little fresher for the next start. Yeah, but you had, but you had, had a day off. Lead. Don't forget. Don't forget. He's going to have five days off between his next start So because you had the Monday off. You, you got another day off. I, I can get another inning out of that guy. I'm just I, – I, again, it, did it cost you them? Can, I don't believe – it's 7-0. It's um, – yeah. I, I, again, that to me, that's there's no way to put that one on the manager in, in any way. Sure, I get what you're saying. Like, normally, I would say the same thing about don't baby pitchers, give them the extra inning. Guys used to throw all types of pitches. This year is a little bit different, I will say, because they're coming off that weird year where they only played 60 games. Right. So we're already kind of getting to the same. Yeah, we're at the 60 game plateau right now. Right. So I think you start worrying about, you know, how long can these guys go this season? Does it start to catch up to them? You've already seen a lot of injuries, soft tissue injuries, especially. So and, and let me, I would let me, be a little and, and, more concerned this year, too. Yeah. Let me go again around to the position player group one more time here. For those that are talking about go get an, you know, a, a, a player. I, I, I think we all agree. Go go address the bullpen at the trade deadline. As long as you're not giving up huge draft cap or huge, huge um, prospect capital. But if you're looking to add a bat, let's just go around if everybody's healthy by that point. And again, they would have to be playing well, right? So if they're playing well, chances are most of your key guys are hitting well. So are you doing anything at catcher with Stevenson and Barnhart? No, you're not doing anything with Votto. 
If Mustakis is back, he's playing either second or third. Let's put him at third for the time being and put India at second. India is playing pretty well right now. If the team is playing well over the next month, the hope is he would be too. At that point, so Suarez, Mustakis, go to the outfield. Are you trading to replace Jesse Winker? Are you trading to replace Nick Castellanos? If Shogo starts to do something in center and, and Naquin's been pretty good and Senzel will be back at, at some point, you know, probably in early August, what are we talking about at that point? I mean, what, what are you looking to who are you looking to replace? Well, and, and that goes back to we were talking about last week. My thing was the, the Reds really don't have a plan, and I don't know that they have the upside of some of the other teams in their division because if you look at the offense, the offense has been pretty damn good all year. They've had Nick Castellanos and Jesse Winker going absolutely off. So while Suarez has been a total shell of himself and guys like Vado have struggled, for the most part, the Reds' offense has been great. Like, I don't think you can ask – the Reds in any given year to be better than top five or six overall in offense, which is where they've been pretty much all season. So I, I even if Suarez starts turning it around, you think, well, probably Castellanos and Winker are going to come back to earth a little bit then. Right, and, I right. mean, th- th- more than likely, they're not going to do much better than they have offense. No, but, but the bottom line is if, if you're, if you're in the consideration mode of, well, if this team puts themselves in a spot, come the trade deadline and they're, they're in it. Well, they're going to probably mean it because those guys are playing well. So then what do you do? No, I, I agree with that. I don't, I don't think there's there's not, there's a lot of moves to be made for this team right now, and that, and I also don't think there's a ton of upside for them. So I don't necessarily agree that they're all of a sudden in contention just because that St. Louis series. I need to see a lot more out of them, and I also don't think as insulting as it was to watch this year and watch the ownership group do absolutely nothing in the offseason coming into this year and, in fact, dismantle what they had a season ago where they actually made the playoffs – I don't know that I would really waste a lot of time or resources to try to win this year because I really don't think they have the team to do it. And I don't even know what their plan is the next year or two. What, like, where is the window now? What happened to the window? Right. We were in a window allegedly, and now it seems to be gone. And I don't really know what the plan is for the next few years. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I just think the whole spending money at this point is it, that's, that's not the issue at this point. The issue is, yeah, go ahead a bullpen armor too. And let's see what we got. And I mean, I maybe that'll be enough. I don't believe it will be. Uh, but like you said, just do not spend too much to get it at this point because mm-hmm. you, you kind of ruined this year before it ever started. All right, Skinny, after decades of looking the other way, Major League Baseball is cracking down on pitchers using foreign substances after a fact-finding mission earlier in the 2021 season determined the problem is widespread enough to warrant intervention. Team owners voted to move forward with the crackdown last week, and in the day since, several notable pitchers, including last year's Cy Young winner and former Red Trevor Bauer, have shown reduced spin rates, a trait that can be enhanced with the right sticky stuff. What do you think Major League Baseball should do about its sticky situation? Well, I mean, first and foremost, if you find guys that are, that are doing it, then you you come down hard. I mean, is it a month suspension? Is it two months? Is it 60 days? I mean, what, what's the one for, for using a foreign a ped is I think it's 60 days. Right. So yeah, I mean, make it as hard as possible. And there's probably a little truth to that. There, and so I'll, I'll even, I'll even try to, there's some truth to that. I, I know Nick Castellanos was outspoken about that's why batting averages are down because of, of, of spin rate. And, and I just, I reject that notion. I, I really do. I think it's because of guys using foreign substances. I, I think it's a lot of, uh, there's a combination of a, of a couple of things, probably a little bit of that to increase spin rate. Because that's been proven to be a thing. I think the other thing is you've got guys who don't shorten up with two strikes, who are trying to hit the ball in the ballpark at all times. So what do you think is going to happen to batting average? It's going down. And the other part is, right or wrong, we're just in an age of guys who come out of that bullpen throwing 98 miles an hour. I mean, that was a rare guy as recently as a decade ago, right? I mean, you'd have maybe a guy at the back end throwing 98 and you know some guys – who were middle, who were 92 to 94, and that was still getting it up there. Now it feels like every freaking guy that comes out of a bullpen is throwing 98 to 100, and that's hard. I don't, you know, I don't know, any fastball can be hit. No, if it's squared up, it's going a long way because it's coming in fast, can go out fast, but you ain't always squaring that thing up. That's coming in at a hard, hard pace, and especially if you're not shorting up on your swing. So I do think baseball should crack down if they find it. I'll be honest, Rick, I don't think they're going to find much of it. Now, I will say if that means because pitchers now are going to say, well, they're on to us, I'll be interested to see what batting average does over the next couple of months with, with this kind of threat of a crackdown. Well, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't think it goes up all that high. I really don't. I think still, as long as you're swinging for the fences with two strikes and as long as you got lightning bolts coming out of the bullpen, 
Batting average ain't going to be very high. Well, you're right. The game has just changed philosophically to where it's not valued in the same way. Right. Getting hits, racking up hits and singles is not valued the same way it once was. But I do think batting average will go up a little bit if you continue to see guys like Bauer and and Garrett Cole. Garrett Cole. They they clearly quit using it. And and Bauer. Well, well, yeah, obviously Garrett Cole. This for three years on this podcast because Trevor Bauer on his YouTube channel has admitted it. Has been so damn open about. Right. Right. He's been saying it for years. He finally last year went out and proved his point. He jumped his revolutions clearly unnaturally, and he won a Cy Young doing it. And he started off this year at a ridiculously torrid pace once again, doing the same thing. And now all of a sudden his revolutions shot way back down after this announced crackdown. He uh, wasn't very sharp in the in the start after it as a result, likely. I think this is actually a huge, huge thing in Major League Baseball. I think most pitchers at this point are doing it. I saw a stat the other day. I think the Washington Post in the article they wrote about it said something like the average spin rate now on a fastball in 2017, there were only three guys in the entire league that had the average RPMs on their fastball. That's something's going on there. Okay, guys didn't naturally get that much bigger, stronger, faster over a four year period. They've clearly gotten good at whatever this sticky substance is that the guys have been trying to use for years. I mean, it used to be pine tar. There used to be things like sunscreen. And I saw, I think it might've been uh winker or Castellanos or one of those guys. Castellanos talked about Castellanos. It. Yeah. Mentioned that, you know, when it was sunscreen or pine tar, we didn't care as much because it was real imperfect and, you know, they weren't really gaining a big advantage, but, but now with the stuff that they've got, I mean, you mentioned it. Guys are throwing 95 plus miles an hour out of the bullpen, but they're throwing wiffle balls while they're doing it because the, the things stick into their finger like super glue. So I, I do think it, it makes a big difference if you can get that spin rate down. There's a big difference between a 98 mile hour fastball coming straight that's move, that's or a 98 moving, yeah. mile hour yeah. fastball that's cutting a couple inches. Yeah. yeah. I, you know, and that's, you know, do you, after every strikeout, do you, does the umpire say, instead of you throwing around, let me see that baseball. Um, after every, you know, out period balls pop to left field. Do when the ball comes back in, does the second base umpire go, let me see that baseball. Uh, you know, is that what we're going to do? I don't think that takes a lot of time to be honest with you, because if we're worried about, you know, every few seconds going out to, to check a pitcher on the mound, but you know, maybe if you, you check the baseball after every out, we'll see if that changes stuff. I just don't think it's going to raise batting average a ton. I don't some, maybe a ton. No, I think the easiest way to do it is letting the players call each other out on it because if you look at they've been doing it for years and if you look at the hd video stuff we have now you can go back into broadcast and pretty much find if a guy is doing something either they're going to their hat too often they're rubbing in a weird spot in their glove consistently like you can see where they're getting the substance from and a lot of times it shows up with a discolored spot on their hat or you you see it on the hd broadcast in today's day and age so i think you just continue to go back and review it when you believe something might be going on or someone reported it yeah does an umpire wear yeah does an umpire wear a buzzer at that point and they they they, you know they see it and buzz him and go go check his hat or go check his left pant pocket and you make the spot check and i would say at that point though i'll be honest with you if if we're going to crack down don't make this a, a a seven day suspension that results in one start make this hurt yeah, and that I think the the thought here has always been it's always been part of the game. It's something that all, all guys have kind of passed on different ways around the rules, but it's gotten to a point now where it's it's gotten out of hand. It's totally unnatural and it's given them too much of a competitive advantage. So I think guys are finally starting to whine enough and credit to Trevor Bauer, he made this public. He's put it out there well, long because, enough. He won the Cy Young doing it. Yeah, his point was, if everybody else is doing it and having success, why am I sitting back not doing it and not having success? And he's right. I mean, he is right. right. He proved it clear as day that, look, I can be the best pitcher in baseball if I do what everyone else is doing. And he went ahead and did it. I mean, he said he was going to do it, and then he did it. So you kind of have to to take his point now. And, and, I mean, he's become such a big star now out in L.A. too. His message has been amplified, so to speak that I think this has put enough pressure on Major League Baseball. I do credit ba- Trevor Bauer for this happening at all. Yeah, I, I went back to the steroid era, Rick, where, um, you know, players were, were not calling each other out on that. And and 
I was always of the ilk that listen, if I'm a second baseman and I'm a pretty good second baseman, I am, I'm, you know, Previn. I feel, I feel it good. And I hit 18 home runs and I drive in 60 and I'm a 280 hitter and um, could make a good piece of change on the open market. Cause I'm maybe in the upper echelon. And then I look at Brett Boone, right. And I'm seeing 43 homers for a ballooned up guy. I think I need to call that guy out. Cause he's taking money out of my pocket by cheating. You would think, I mean, I, I get kind of the good old boys club and you know, you're not going to go out and start snitching on people, but Hey, we're talking about millions of dollars in contract money. I mean, the difference between Trevor Bauer, what he would have gotten had he had uh, average to bad year last year with right. the Reds and continued down that path as opposed to turning around and becoming Cy Young. Think about the money he made in that one year by doing what he did. And he clearly said the whole year he was cheating. Yeah, no, right. You're right. All right, let's move on to football, Skinny, where Pro Football Focus tweeted out individual projections for Bengals offensive players for the coming season. The site projects quarterback Joe Burrow passing for 4,523 yards, Joe Mixon rushing for 1,087 yards, T. Higgins with 1,173 yards receiving, Jamar Chase with 1,056 yards receiving, and Tyler Boyd with 923 yards receiving. What word would you use to describe those projections for the Bengals offense this season? Um, one word, huh? That That's a good one. Cause I don't know if I have the one word for it. Um, is it overblown? Is it? Yes, I guess. Oh, I, mean, I guess. Yeah. Well, there's cause, cause there's a lot of layers to this. So when you first see those raw numbers, right? You go, wow, 4,500 yard passer and a thousand yard rusher and 3000 yard receivers. Who's going to stop this offense? <laughs> well, then let's break it down a little bit, which I did. Um, and those, again, those are not awful numbers. But let's not forget, that's in a 17-game season. So if we start to break it down a little bit, um, and I don't have it in front of me, Rick, the numbers I broke I, I down. Do. It's, yeah, okay, and, yeah. And, that's, and that's where you really kind of threw me off here because I, I'm seeing those numbers initially. I kind of did I'm like, too. Whoa. But then in your uh, column on Local12.com, which you wrote about here, y- you broke it down game by game, what those numbers would mean. And for Burrow, 266. So yeah, 266 passing yards. Well, he averaged 268 last year before right. he got hurt. right. Uh, Mixon, 63.9. I think he averaged like 71 right, last year. Right. Higgins, we're talking 69 receiving yards. Last year, he was at 56.8. So you're looking at a jump there. Jamar Chase is at 62 yards, which I think that is the most ambitious claim right here. Is that? Yeah, I don't. I think that's the guy that's got a chance to, 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 to lead the team in receiving yards. Oh, he very, he very well could, but you're also talking about a rookie yeah, jumping yeah. Tyler Boyd right here because Boyd is at 54 yards per game now. And uh, last year, Tyler Boyd averaged 56 yards a game. So you're saying Boyd's coming back slightly and Chase is going to overtake him and have you know over 1,000 yards as a rookie, which I think a lot of people believe is possible. But when you're talking about a rookie in his first year with two other talented receivers, I don't know if that's a guarantee. But yeah, I mean, really, that's the only one that stands out to me as kind of ambitious. Yeah, no, that's where I, I think I wrote that, that those are nice numbers, but I actually think they have a chance to do better than those numbers. The funny part is, that, like you said, when you first see them, you're like, whoa, that's an incredible offensive group. That's good. Don't get me wrong. I think it's got a chance to be way better than that. Not, not way better is not the right word. Better than that. Um, and if they reach those numbers, it'll be pretty good. Um, but it's not as gaudy as it, as it first looks. The one thing I will say is, you know, the more you think about this, these three receivers and T Higgins, we talked to him yesterday and he talked about how he's kind of transformed his body even more where he, you know, he weighs about the same, but he's turned it into muscle. He's weighing 220 pounds. Talked about how, how much better of a route runner he thinks he's going to be after a year of looking at film and Tyler Boyd's already a vet who's been through it. And, and, you know, we obviously are hopeful of the upside of chase and, and, you know, the, the questions asked of Zach Taylor about, you know, the passing game, et cetera. And, and, you know, you know, where the ball is going to go. And his point is it's, we're going to go where the coverage dictates. And that's, that sounds good. That's every coordinator. And then you start to think of, yeah, but that's kind of what they tried last year. And it wasn't, oh, it wasn't great. And some of it was, it comes down to when you talk about the ball goes where coverage dictates, it's a matter of who wins their one-on-one matchups. And unfortunately last year, AJ Green didn't win enough of them. You know, the other guys who are backups don't win them. That's why they're backups. But you got Tyler Boyd who wins them. You got T Higgins who won a good chunk of them last year. And and if he's bigger and stronger and a better route runner is going to win more. And Chase, obviously, the whole concept of him with a taking a slant and breaking a tackle like a running back and going, you suddenly do have three guys who should be able to win the majority of one-on-one matchups. I think that's what makes this offense hard to beat. 
And um, that's where I think those numbers can get even bigger and better. And so then if you decide, all right, well, we can't, we can't cover these guys one-on-one. Some of them, we're going to have to try to double all across the field. Hello, light running box. Hello, Joe Mixon running for 1400 or 1500 rushing yards. So I do think the funny part is those numbers are nice. I think they've got a chance to be significantly better. I think that's certainly possible. One thing I wanted to ask you about, because I think it's going to have a big impact on how this offense rolls and, and if they're able to put up bigger numbers and become a more high octane offense, so to speak, is Joe Burrow's arm strength, his ability to push the ball downfield. That's been a big topic of conversation since OTAs have started. And, you know, it can kind of be one of those things where it's, everyone's in the best shape of their life, right? When it's this type of year, it's what sure. you always hear is every, everyone's in the best shape of their life and Burrow's coming off this injury. So what else are you going to talk about right now? Oh, look how strong his arm looks. Uh, Zach Taylor said while he was talking to you guys, I think on Tuesday. Yeah, yesterday, yeah. Burrow could throw the ball 90 yards, he thinks. Now right? he did, now, now he, now, yeah, yeah he, it, and he did laugh after he said, I think he can throw it 90 yards. He goes, no, I don't have an idea how far he can throw it. But I think his, his point was he can throw it pretty far right now. Right, that he's ripping it. I mean, he was he said a tug-in-cheek. But, I mean, again, he was cl- clearly leaning into that narrative that some of the players have shared with you guys and some of the media people have kind of run with that Burrow is, is throwing the ball harder, stronger, w- whatever word you want to use, than he did a season ago. That was one of the – sort of knocks on him coming out of the draft as he didn't have a monster arm. Are right. you buying into this narrative that he's I, really, I, 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 I am. Cause I actually, I've seen it with my own eyes and I, I really can't tell you that, that it's a huge, huge noticeable difference, but there's a difference there. And I, I think the genuine, I guess, awe from when we've asked players. And I think the guys we've talked to so far receiver wise have been Tyler Boyd, CJ Uzama, and then T Higgins. And as soon as you ask the question, they like perk up like, oh yeah, it's no, yeah. I mean, so I don't think it's a, a, of them just going, yeah, he's ripping it better. I, no, I think there's a genuine, oh yeah, um, to it. So I, I I believe some of that. I do think that, that Zach made a pretty good point after he did the jokingly, you know, I think he can throw it 90 yards. He said, listen, all I know is I need him to throw it on time and accurately. And he does that. So, you know, it's one thing, you know, if you have a howitzer and you throw a six yard slant at 5,000 miles an hour and it's uncatchable, does that really help? Not at all. Right. So, uh, yeah, I think on time accurate with a little more zip. Great. That, that, that's perfect. And I think that's just, you know, hopefully that is the byproduct of, of him. That's what he wanted to do. He, he made a point in the office. He wanted to increase velocity on his passes, and, and he seems to have found a way to do that. Well, I mean, maybe, the one maybe thing, he's using a foreign substance. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Maybe he got some of Bauer's sticky gunk before he uh, got out of town and into LA. Or maybe while he was in LA rehabbing, he met up with Bauer. Ah, bingo. Guy. There you go. I think yeah. I just put it together. Yeah. All right. Speaking of professional athletes formerly based out of Cincinnati, former Bengals receiver Chad Johnson was part of the big boxing exhibition card over the weekend that culminated with Floyd Mayweather and Logan Paul squaring off. Chad Johnson went toe-to-toe with combat sport veteran Brian Maxwell in a four-round fight. Skinny, what did you think of Chad's performance? And do you think this new wave of social media influencer and celebrity boxing matches is good for the sport? Yeah, let me ask one quick question before I answer your question. Did you buy it? I did not buy it. I watched it illegally on a very high-quality stream. Okay, good enough. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm proud of you for that, at least. Um, I, I'm gonna answer your. I'm gonna answer the Chad question first. I, I got to give the guy credit. I mean, you know, he's 43 years old too. Let's not discount that. And he's obviously in great shape. I don't care if he's a 25 year old. He's in great shape. Period. Um, but he's not a pro boxer and he got that and neither really is Brian Maxwell. He's a, uh, you know, a, a, what a, um, kind of a mixed martial arts kind of guy. Um, but he landed a pretty good punch in the first round, took a punch in the fourth round of the four round exhibition, um, got knocked down, got up, finished about four rounds worth. I got, you know, as much as I think Chad can be a clown, I got to tip my cap to the guy. I mean, and I know to his credit, his tweet afterwards, eight minutes for a million dollars. I'm going to celebrate at McDonald's. I got to tell you, good for you, bro. Good for you. I, I can't think of anything other than that. I'm not about to pay for it. It's not my cup of tea. Um, and I'm going to answer your other question here in a second. But I I hope you agree with me. I, I got to give the dude credit. I don't know how you can. First of all, I don't know how you can't just enjoy Chad Johnson. He's just 
an interesting guy who seems to do whatever he feels like doing at that given moment. And oftentimes he ends up making a success and making a spectacle of it and being entertaining, which again, he was, he probably had the most entertaining fight on this card. Had it gone longer, I think it would have been even more entertaining. And, and here's the funny thing. He He looked gassed though. And understandably so. I mean, he was definitely gassed and, and, and he went viral for getting knocked down. He, He took a vicious, right hook to the jaw and and it got him pretty good. But like you said, he jumped right back up. And if you were actually trying to score this fight, he won the fight. Yeah. And for the record knockdown. Yeah. There was no winner or loser to any of these fights. They were exhibitions, but um, that's, I I didn't watch all of it. I just saw the two clips. I talked about the first round punch he landed and and then the knockdown and him popping back up. But that's what I've seemed to have read that. Yeah. If this was actually officially scored, he might've won the darn thing. Yeah, I think he would have gone 10-9, 10-9, 10-9 in favor of Chad, and then he would have lost 10-8 in that last round. Uh, but even that last round could have gone 10-9 because he was he was close to winning it aside from the knockdown. So he he forced a lot of the action. He he showed decent technique, even though it was an ugly fight. When he when he was actually squared up and like had his bearings about him, he looked like a boxer for the most part. You know, once those guys started letting their hands go a little bit, they got wild because you've got one guy who's not a boxer at all and the other guy is a bare knuckle brawler but him just being willing to step in at his age and fight a dude who's a real fighter not a real boxer but a very real fighter who has put people down you gotta give him some credit it takes some uh intestinal fortitude no i again i I, as much as it's not my cup of tea for goodness sakes i can't do nothing but say good for you man million million dollars for eight minutes and you you hung in there good for you now the the big thing that's come out of this is the other question you asked is this good for boxing or bad for boxing and i'm gonna say i don't think it's either um i think it's good for floyd mayweather it's good for chad johnson it's good for for logan paul by the way what, what i've read about the paul brothers i know vaguely of them what are they famous on YouTube for doing other than him filming a suicide or the other maybe it was the other brother? What, what, what yeah. the two of them filmed the suicide? The, the other brother was the one who uh, filmed the dead body. And I've actually only been able to tell them apart since the boxing careers have taken off. Actually, I could, I didn't, I couldn't tell you which was Logan, which was Jake until this whole boxing thing well, started. And now I've well, kind of started to separate them a little bit. Yeah. The only one I, way I would know is after reading up on them a little bit, I guess one of them um, w- was doing, I don't know if he's acting or he was doing some kind of wrestling thing where he jumped off of something and landed on a table and busted his right testicle. I'm Ooh. thinking that's how you could tell them apart. Maybe I, yeah, I, I don't want, I don't want to be the one to do. I, I was going to say, that, I don't, but, yeah, I'm not, I don't think I'm going to be in charge. But, of but honestly, you, you, this is more, way more your demo than my demo. What are they famous for on YouTube? And I mean yeah. that sincerely, I'm trying to figure out, are they famous for being famous? Are they yeah. clever? Are they funny? Are they creative? So this is the, the thing with them is they are the, the, of the vlog era on YouTube. So they were kind of doing that daily vlogging stuff and they were very much a, young teenage boy maybe even younger than that kind of acting like d-bags blowing stuff up annoying neighbors being loud just trying to do crazy things catch it on video and they put out an insane amount of content i mean they were both daily vlogging every day it's one of those things where at this point they're kind of like you know when you're a kid and you you start to outgrow stuff and everything just becomes like too uncool so you can't like it just because yep they're kind of like that for adults. Every adult looks at them and despises them and goes, oh my God, it's so uncool and so lame and all, and these guys are douches and everything else. But at the end of the day, it's kind of like, you know, it's not meant for you. It's meant for yeah, young teenage boys or younger. And so, I mean, everyone hates them and understandably so. They are kind of intolerable, but I also think they are clearly smart because they have empires in terms of what yeah. they've built and the amount of money that they're yeah. bringing in. I mean, go back to go back to Jackass in the day on MTV, right? I mean, yeah, the, for, for me, that was a little bit funny for a while, and then it kind of grew old, and I'm, you know, it's grew very out of it. much that if you were if you were scaling right. it out to be right. like right. content every single day. Yeah, I, I just I'm trying to figure that. So anyway, let's go back to the initial point of this. Is is this good for the sport? I, I don't think it's either. Um, I, I don't think anybody who's I, listen, I go back, I don't go back to the golden era of boxing, which is probably the forties and fifties and sixties, but I go back to a pretty good era of boxing, which was, you know, the Muhammad Ali, Joe Frazier, George Foreman, Larry Holmes ish into Mike Tyson. So I, I've, I've, I've grown up in, in Sugar Ray Leonard and Roberto Duran and, and Aaron Pryor and, and those guys at, at different weight classes. Um, you know, it's kind of faded out of my realm of, of caring any longer. So for me, 
I don't think it hurts the sport. I think if you're a boxing purist, you scoff at it and you just wait for the next match that you care about from a pure boxing standpoint. Um, if you look at it the other way of, I'm just looking for something to entertain me and I'll pay 69 bucks for it. Okay. I'm not going to do it, but if you do, I'm not going to tell you you're stupid for doing it. It's just not my cup of tea. If it's yours, good for you. Um, I don't think it brings more eyeballs to boxing that suddenly, Oh, the younger kids are going to watch the heavyweight championship. No, I think they want to watch someone to watch Logan Paul, someone to watch Chad on the undercard, someone to watch Floyd Mayweather dance around and make money. Um, I think at the end of the day, it's good for Floyd Mayweather. As he talked about, he said he's the best, what he's the best armed arm or best bank robber, legalized bank robber in the country. And he is, but okay. If somebody's going to pay for what you want to do, as long as it's, it's not illegal, have at it, my man. But I don't think it's either good, neither good nor bad for the sport. I just think it's something completely separate from that. I'm pretty much with you on that. I think that's the right way to look at it. I think it's sad for the sport that this is so much more popular and that they're creating legitimately more entertaining fights than right. boxing has been able to create for the most part, because that's boxing's biggest issue. It was its biggest issue for Floyd's entire career. Floyd was mostly a matchup made superstar. He never really was tested until the very end of his careers. They made some of the fights that everyone wanted to see like the Pacquiao fight, but it was way after they were out of their prime. So to me, it's sad that we've gotten to the point where this can be so much more popular than the actual boxing matches. I, I don't know that it can be a good thing for boxing, but I actually do think there is something about experiencing fight night and experiencing buying a pay-per-view and inviting friends over. And after you do it, enjoying that and kind of catching the itch to a little bit where they could maybe parlay this into something, or maybe they could start combining with the Paul brothers. They've that clearly infiltrated the sport. They're clearly legit. They're clearly a huge draw. Maybe you can start combining cards where they get a real fight on an undercard of a, legit boxing match that you want to sell a ton of pay-per-views for. I don't know what the exact answer there is, but I do think there is a way to parlay some of the success that these social media influencers have found in, in the boxing realm and use that to your advantage as a legit boxing outfit. I, I think it's wrong to look at it and say, this is clown stuff. This is bad for our sport and ignore it completely and try to stick your head in the sand because uh, there's clearly a lot of money involved. That's not a bad way to look at it. I mean, you know, if you weave a couple of these into a real undercard where the one thing I would say is you can't put that as the as the initial fight on an undercard just to get it out of the way as an exhibition, because then I, I guess you've already if people have already paid their money. It doesn't matter. But then you don't have the eyeballs to watch the fight that you want people to watch. I mean, do you weave it through to the point where that's the literally the second to last fight? Um, before the, the main event, it's kind of the pseudo main event of the exhibition. I don't think you're wrong in thinking that. I just wonder if you're a Floyd Mayweather, if you're the Paul brothers and you can just get good money uh, and not have to mix with that. Yeah. Um, do you really True. care to do that? Uh, that's a know. good point. They, they probably don't want to share those profits and they probably don't need to. Right. Uh, that's a, that's a great point on your, your side of things. And, and, and maybe that's where it ends. And in that case, I think you're right. It's probably not really good or bad for the sport of boxing aside from maybe it just gets some people more in the habit of enjoying fight night, yeah. buying pay-per-views, that type of thing, which I do think there is some legitimate value there. Now, now Rick, I, again, I don't know this because I didn't watch it. I didn't buy it. All that, all that stuff. How many fights were on the undercard and how long did, did, did the night last? Was it like a normal boxing? Cause obviously if you're playing, you know, if you had normal undercard into a, a main event, you've got, you know, 10 round bouts leading into sometimes a 13 round bout. And that can take a long, long time. And from an attention span perspective, that can be too much. How long did this take start to finish? Yeah. You know, I'll be honest. I think there were four fights total, but I'm not real sure. I watched the Chad Johnson one. Okay. I tuned back out and, and started doing other stuff. I was working and then I tuned back in at the end of the night for the Chad or I mean the, the uh, Paul, the yeah, Paul, Logan Mayweather. Paul yeah, Mayweather fight uh, because I saw tweets going off about it. So yeah, I wasn't tuned in because I didn't, purchased the thing but uh i think it was you know three and a half okay. four hours so somewhat similar maybe a little bit shorter because you had uh shorter rounds for those earlier fights but uh i'm not shorter rounds but just shorter fights in general right, with only like right. three or four rounds right but here's the other thing that i i think i saw a lot of online during the fight is everybody especially the legitimate boxing media people were trying their best to make sure you knew that they weren't enjoying the fight <laughs> while also for the first three rounds, clearly wanting to enjoy the fight and analyze it and break it down because it was the most interesting Floyd Mayweather fight we've seen maybe ever, or at least for a while. I mean, tell me the last entertaining Floyd Mayweather fight. 
There hasn't been a lot of them. The dude doesn't throw any punches. He gets in the ring. He evades with the best of them. He scores he enough. He scores enough. Yeah, he scores his points and he wins by decision. And and Wait. so like this was a fight where in the <laughs> end of the first round, Logan Paul goes absolutely nuts and just abandons all technique and starts throwing haymakers for 10, 12 seconds in a row of 22 punch combo of which he landed zero, but he pushes <laughs> Floyd all around the ring and throws all these punches. And all of a sudden Floyd is kind of like, I guess I gotta dude, start throwing back. Like yeah, I, dude's crazy, man. I don't know what I'm doing here. Yeah. And Floyd let his hands go and threw more punches and fought more aggressively than we've seen him fighting forever. Yeah. And Cause, cause you thought 30 pounds more than him. So it's, it's difficult, but still it was fun. Yeah, you thought going in, he he's making his payday no matter what. He's not going to get himself hurt. So just dance around for four rounds with his cat and be done with it. And make my make my money. Exactly. And he he turned it into a fight where we saw him move around more and throw more punches than we have at probably any point in his career, really. So that's what I didn't really understand is why people were so working so hard to make sure you knew that they just didn't like this and it was no fun at all. Was it good skilled fighting? No, they they missed a lot of punches. They weren't able to land against each other. Have you watched most of Floyd Mayweather's fights? The guys who he fights, which are usually amateurs because he doesn't fight anyone very good, normally can't hit him. They usually hit it like a 12 to 20% success rate anyway. Like this wasn't that unusual for a Floyd Mayweather fight. And it had a lot more entertaining aspects because he was fighting a dude 30 pounds heavier than him and five inches taller. There was the legitimate what if factor. What if Logan just happens to throw the right combination and, and land one square? Does he have a chance? Turns out he didn't. But it and was the, interesting for a little bit. And the bottom line to it is this wasn't a real boxing match and it, nobody won it. So what difference did it make? Like I said, if you want to, if somebody wants to pay for it and that's their entertainment, I'm not going to tell you it's, you're stupid. I, I, again, it's not my cup of tea. And for those in the legitimate, maybe boxing media who did, okay, it's not designed for you, buddy. It's just not. But damn, if all of them weren't looking for the page views off of it, because everyone <laughs> well, was yeah. covering it. The Chris no Mannix is no all question. the guys that I, I follow for real boxing stuff. were covering this fight. Sure. So, I mean, that's that's the thing. They're all they're all making their money off of it. They're all staying employed off of it. But they God forbid they enjoyed it for a second or or thought it was actually a, a okay. real fight. I mean, dude, I'm, I'm not stupid enough. I put up a, a chance story that, that, you know, very early on Monday morning with with a couple of those you know tweets that I talked about the video tweets embedded. I'm going to get my page views off of it, too. So, yeah, you're right. Yeah, I mean, and, and again, I just it it's not like it was the NFL Pro Bowl. They weren't going half speed. They weren't. Trying, you know, I mean, they they were trying to hurt each other. It was a legitimate fight. Now, was Floyd going out there and and putting himself at, at huge at risk? risk? Maybe no. not. Right. But but like I said, he was also throwing more punches and being more aggressive than we ever really seen him. So he wasn't holding back by any stretch of the imagination. I I thought it was certainly worth whatever people paid to get it, and I, I, it was worth my time watching the illegal stream that I didn't pay anything for. So go. That's even come better. and get me, Google. Even even better. Or Showtime, I guess. Yeah. All right. The NBA playoffs have advanced past the first round. We're down to the final four teams now. The Jazz and the Clippers make up one half of the Western Conference semis with the Nuggets and the Suns on the other side of the bracket. In the Eastern Conference, it's the Sixers versus the Hawks and the Bucks versus the Nets. Skinny, what did you learn from the first round of NBA playoff games? Um, Luka Doncic needs some help. <laughs> I mean, that guy is – Ian Dame Lillard. I, I kind of feel for them because they do just about – Every although Luca could make a free throw, that, that that would probably help Dallas a little bit. But man, those two guys were fun to watch for a round, and and they're not around any longer. The other thing I learned is is I've got them in a the future bet. In fact, Rick in the West, I got three of the four teams left. I sadly don't have the Jazz, and I was hoping the Clips would steal Game One, but I've got the Clips, Suns, and 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 Denver to win it all. And in the East, I got Milwaukee left, and I've got the Sixers left. But I think I learned a couple of things. Watching Nikola Jokic game after game after game, they were right to name that cat the MVP of the league because you got two choices. You either come double him and he passes out of it or you try to guard him single up in the post and he just shoots an old man jump hook over you and you can't stop him. Um, And that makes Denver very, very tough. I also think this, I know, you know, Phoenix beats kind of a depleted Laker team, but they got every part you need. You got a point guard who's done great things in his career. You got an emerging star in Devin Booker and you got nice role players around them and a decent big in DeAndre Ayton. Uh, I think they're legit good. So I think it's the one thing that's fun this year is it isn't just waiting for, um, you know, Lakers and whoever to get to the finals or um, 
Cavs and Cavs hooking up with the Warriors or Warriors hooking up with the Heat, whatever. It's not almost a predetermined outcome. I think that's what's making this a lot of fun. I know you can argue in the East the predetermined outcome is the Nets if everybody's healthy. I'm not sleeping on Milwaukee yet. Let's see what they do at home. Um, you know, as you know, most of those series don't really start until somebody steals one on the other person's home court. So let's see if, if you know, if Brooklyn does it and goes up 3-0, you can say night-night. But I'm not sleeping on Milwaukee yet. So the thing I think I learned is it's it's actually kind of fun because it's it's so wide open. Yeah, it's funny because I was going to say kind of the opposite there on your last point. I was the one who was saying, hey, the, those big three on the Nets haven't really played together at any point this year for an extended period. I don't know that they're just going to mesh perfectly because they've got some weird personalities there with Harden, Durant, and Irving. Yet through the first round plus of the playoffs now, it they look like by far the best team because Durant's back playing at such a high level. Yeah. And I mean, they just have so much more talent than everyone else. You know, I mean, you you look at the Lakers and I thought them meeting up with the Lakers in the finals, if nothing else, the Lakers would be more together, more experienced, more ready for that moment. Whereas the, the nets would fracture maybe at, at the first sign of adversity. They haven't hit that adversity yet, but my question is now is becoming, will they? in these playoffs. I don't know if anyone is good enough to really push them and and give them a run. We'll see. I'm not I'm not ready to bank that just yet, but I do think my initial takes on I'm not sold on the Nets were probably off base. They clearly look like the best team to me. You mentioned the Mavericks and them needing to get Luka more help. Are you surprised by what Kristaps Porzingis has turned into since he went to Dallas? <laughs> 7-4-28-foot jump shooter? I mean, but in a, in a yeah. league where it's not even I don't know. He plays like he's like need to come off of screens right, and catch right. and shoot or something. It's like the league doesn't even do that anymore. What are? <laughs> yeah, it's it's bizarre because I mean he literally has no secondary help. I mean he really doesn't. Uh, again, can he make some free throws? It would certainly help. Um, it's a it's a weird thing to watch. As good as that guy shoots from from all over the floor, different angles and different ways that he struggles struggled so badly at the foul line. But yeah, I mean just between watching him and Dame, you're like. Man, they could use some. But help. did you not think Porzingis a couple years ago yes. was really going to develop yes. into one of the yes. better players? I mean, I thought he was a superstar in the making, and he has become uh, as average as I mean, maybe not even average. He kind of stinks. He's yeah, he really doesn't do anything for you on offense. He's kind of a zero, and he's obviously not very good on defense either. So yeah, that's the thing that I would be most disappointed with as a Mavericks fan. There that you have Luca. He's been more than living up to the hype since he arrived last year as a rookie. And yet your big move to get Kristaps Porzingis has not worked out at all. They really should be in a great spot right now. And instead they're kind of at this crossroads needing to figure out how are they going to maximize this time with one of the most talented young players in the game and Luka Doncic. I don't, I don't know what the answer there is right now because they've, they've dumped tons of money into Kristaps Porzingis to get really nothing out of him. Did you think um, did you think that that Jokic deserved the MVP? I did. Yeah, yeah I, I mean, the, 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 I I could have seen Steph Curry for sure. I understand if they don't make the playoffs, it's hard to right, to right. give him that award. But I do think if you look at what Steph Curry did with this year's Warriors team, oh, what amazing. they were dealing with, yeah. and the the talent deficiency compared to most of the other teams, I mean, you you heard Draymond Green whine about it enough when he's been on these NBA tonight panels where he's constantly talking about guys not having enough talent around him and how GMs have to do a better job. I think it's clearly him uh, talking about his own right. situation and projecting right. a little bit. Steph had an unbelievable year, but Jokic, man, it, like you said, he's just a total matchup nightmare because there's nothing you can do to take him away. Nothing. Nothing. And yet he creates problems for other matchups too, because of his passing ability and his feel and his IQ he is just a very unique player. I don't know that we'll ever see an MVP like him again. I think this is kind of a unique year where he caught it at the right time, uh, kind of in between the, the passing of the guard. And maybe that leads me into the last thing I wanted to ask you about, which is, are we in a post-LeBron era of the NBA? Has the king finally fallen? Have we moved past him being the guy? Yes and no. You know, again, Father Time's caught up a little bit. He's not going to be the guy that's going to get you 40 when he has to get you 40 any longer, in my opinion, but he's still a damn good player. Um, I, I think the whole takeaway is, and it's kind of was the narrative the whole year, and it's why I, I, I went against the Lakers despite the fact that they were kind of one of the Western Conference favorites. 
all it takes is an injury to AD and you're done. Yeah. You I mean, were that's saying all, that all it along. takes. I mean, yeah. and so you can't count. I, I mean, I got to laugh. It's kind of mean, but Charles Barkley called him what Anthony street closed Davis. <laughs> I mean, it's the truth to that. There is. Um, so yeah, I, I think LeBron next year and beyond, I don't know if he's the carry a team guy, I do think he's the great second complimentary piece guy. And I don't say that in a, in a mean way. I mean, the guy still is extraordinarily good, but listen, man, you ain't going to be great forever. Um, and eventually you need somebody else to carry a bigger load than what you used to carry. He can still carry a heavy load, but not like he used to. And understandably so you need somebody else to carry it. And that's what Anthony Davis was supposed to be. Well, and even in LeBron's most impressive years, some of his worst Cleveland teams, if you take Anthony Davis off this year's Lakers group, I don't think this Lakers team is as good as any of those no, teams probably, that he yeah, won with in yeah. the past. That's the thing. I mean, everyone knew that they needed Anthony Davis to make this run. It couldn't be just LeBron. Even right. LeBron at his peak powers, I don't think, could have accomplished that with this roster. With the with the two of those together, they are really difficult to match up with. But you take either one of them out, and this roster is left with very little. I mean, Taylor Horton Tucker might have been their next best score. Yeah, that's not good. Two. Yeah, that's not good. And he barely plays. But yeah. I mean, you saw him come in with those second units at times or at the end of games. And it's like, man, he's the only one that seems like he can create his own look all of a sudden. Yeah. So I've got five of the eight teams left that I've bet to win on the future future line to make. And I can make money on each some some less than others. And now I'm feeling awful because it feels like the way I'm watching this, it, it's going to be Utah and, and Brooklyn probably. And it's going to ace me out entirely. And Donovan Mitchell might be the easiest guy to like. Yeah. In terms of watching a, a, a player and the appreciating could, his game. If, if the Clips could have stole game one, I would have I, I I would have felt that I have no that they're winning that and they still can win that series. They showed it against Dallas where they, you know, kept gutted it out when they had to. But I think, you know, that, that was a game they up thirteen at the half. I know it's on the road, but you gotta you gotta swipe that one. You, you know, you put yourself in a position to swipe that one. And Donovan Mitchell literally went, nah, I'm, I've got this. I was happy to see Kawhi Leonard actually guarding Donovan Mitchell down the stretch in some important possessions. That that was my thing. I talked about Kawhi Leonard on the last podcast that it doesn't feel like the Clippers have got the guy that they wanted. And offensively, that may not be fair because he's actually shot the ball pretty well, yeah. uh, even in the playoffs. But to me, do you remember when he was the best, best player absolutely. in the league for absolutely. a couple years with the Spurs and then that year with Toronto? Like He was a difference maker because he could lock down anyone on the court. And it's like, he just hasn't been that guy. They've been letting talented guys carve them up on the other end of the court way too often, especially in the playoffs. It was good to see him go back. Now, it didn't work, but him guarding Donovan Mitchell down the stretch in some important moments, I thought that was interesting to see and fun to see again because I just don't think there's enough of that. The, the, the best players in the NBA oftentimes don't guard the other best players in right. the NBA. Simply because, fearful foul trouble. Yeah, Right, exactly. But I just think that... When you're in the playoffs, man, I think there's got to be more of that, especially in crunch time. Especially down the stretch. Yes, exactly. I would agree with that. Yep. All right. That's all we all got. Right. Yep. We came up with this a day early, but we'll be back next week. Get some Ask Any Anything questions in by then, if you would. Um, we'll have a lot more to talk about one week from today. Thanks for being with us. For Rick Roaring, I'm Richard Skinner. It's been the Skinny Podcast, the weekly potpourri edition.